All right. What can I get you to drink, Michaela? Uh, what you got? Uh, I have beer, wine. I have a hard cider. I have all kinds of booze. I have water and oat milk. And <laughs> all right, I'll have some water. If you have bubbly water, that would be great. And yeah. I'll have a beer. Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Michaela Biasuti. Michaela is a great scientist and someone I'm proud to call a close colleague and a dear friend. I first met Michaela in Seattle in the late 90s when I was a postdoc at the University of Washington and she was doing her PhD there. And a few years later, when she finished her degree and I'd recently started as a junior faculty member at Columbia, I hired her as a postdoc. And she came and she stayed. She's been promoted ever since then up through the ranks of the research faculty at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory over the last 15 years. And we've been working together in a variety of ways since then. So we talk very often about a lot of things, and you can hear that familiarity in our conversation, I think. Michaela is a climate dynamicist, so she studies how the climate works and tries to explain it. And in particular, she focuses on rain in the tropics, and she's done important work on the monsoons and the annual cycle. One of Michaela's important findings came about 10 years ago when she discovered that as the climate warms, the annual cycle in the tropics shifts to later in the year. And one part I really like in this interview is where she talks about how upset she got when I suggested to her that she should publish this new important scientific finding as a single author rather than with me as a co-author. But in the end, my name is on the paper anyway because it's hard to say no to Michaela. But besides that, it was a broad conversation. We talked about her life and career, feminism and what community means to her and why she never wanted to move for a better job the way many academics do. Knowing Michaela as well as I do, it was a special pleasure to do this interview with her. She's a deep thinker and a passionate and warm person. And I think after you hear this, you'll appreciate her as I do. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lamont Research Professor Michaela Biasuti. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. So I thought uh, maybe we could start with science today. And that you could tell me about the workshop this summer mm. that I didn't make it to, but you did. Yes, uh, you missed out. About, what, what, I can't remember what it was called. Well, it is the second ICTP uh, summer school on climate dynamics with a focus on this year um, convection and uh, convective aggregation. And then the workshop itself was really um, specifically on convective aggregation. Okay, so we should translate some of this um, in the hope that we might have listeners who don't already know what all of these things mean. So ICTP, Is International it? Center for Theoretical Physics in mm -hmm. Trieste, Italy. Uh, and convection is like thunderstorms and rain, and aggregation is when they all clump together, right? Yep. And so this was the second one. So the first one was one that you organized, right? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the ICTP... Um, is a, a very uh, unique institution because it's funded uh, through UNESCO. Yeah. Uh, and it has a, uh, the goal of bringing together scientists uh, from the top universities with uh, scientists from uh, developing world. And so they do a lot of summer schools. Yeah. Um, and they've done, you know, a lot of workshops and summer schools on climate as well. But now they've decided to start this series um, with 
uh, and climate dynamics and have it be a yearly thing, one week of oh. summer school and, and one week of uh, related workshop. Oh, wait a second. I didn't even quite realize this. So you did the... The first one was the one that you organized the previous mm-hmm. year, right? Yeah. So that is now going to be a regular thing in perpetuity? Yes. Wow. That's great. So you kind of created this uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. I, they wanted to do it, and I was at the right place at the right time. But So the summer school means like graduate students and stuff come for a couple of weeks, and you have lectures, and it's sort of... Uh, Just once a week in this case. But they do have lectures in the morning, and then in the afternoon is... Uh, um, labs at the computer uh not real labs labs but um either running simulations or doing data analysis uh, um you know whatever is appropriate for the topic of the summer school right and um and then the second week is just their participants in the in the workshop and the nature of the workshop i think they're still figuring out what they want so the first year when i ran it um, ended up being, oh, maybe two even crammed with uh, talks and people and very short, you know, AGU style talks. Um, right. AGU style, I guess. Means it, short, 12 short, minutes. 12 minutes. A workshop for us means people talking to it, giving scientific presentations all day. That's what workshop really means, we should say. Yes. It sounds like people are like hammering and sawing things or something but it's not like that no that would be a nice uh, side activity to get um you know out of your brain and into a different space but uh, no that doesn't happen so this year was definitely fewer speakers they wanted to do two people with different opinions and then you know and then discussion so this was still kind of about the monsoons a little bit or not really last year's it was and this year um, so they say convective aggregation. What they really mean is convective self-aggregation. Yeah. So there was very, very little about um, right. all the large-scale things that do aggregate convection because there's large-scale circulation right. um, that kind of imposes it from the outside. Yeah. Um, and a lot more about how feedbacks between convection and radiation um, and and clouds and rainfall and so on and so forth makes big blobs of convection happen. Yeah, so this is now a, a really hot topic in our field that people discovered, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, that if you do a computer simulation of a bunch of clouds in a box and the box is big enough, then all the clouds clump into one spot and the rest of the um, of the box dries out and uh in a when it's sort of a box that's representation of the uh, representative of the tropical oceans and so now people are scrambling for some years now to understand what this means and what it has to do with the real planet where it's not just a box but a more complicated large planet with geography and continents and mm-hmm. so this is uh something that's drawing the smart young people to, to yeah to understand yeah there were how many so how many people Oh boy, maybe for the school around 40, and and then a few more came just for the workshop. Oh, so not so big. No, this one wasn't so big. The first year, the workshop was more than 100. Right. Um, Again, uh, it had a different feel. Yeah. In Trieste. (laughs) Yeah. Close to your home. Very close to my home. Um, So my, yeah, my folks are about 
I don't know, an hour and 15 minutes by train um, northwest of Trieste. In Udine. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and so uh, Trieste is where I, I, I did my undergrad studies. Um, the ICTP is where I first learned about the existence even of, uh, of uh, atmospheric sciences and, and meteorology and climate sciences as something that I could do. Yeah. Um, yeah, is where I met my advisors for the first time because they were teaching a summer school on El Niño. Right. So let's take a step back. So you, so you grew up in Udine, which is, as we've just said, the north far northeast of Italy. It's like almost Slovenia, kind of. Right? It's almost Slovenia and it's almost Austria. It's almost Austria, right. And so when did you get interested in science? When and how? Um, I had a very good uh, high school teacher of physics. So I went to... Um, the way it work, high school works in Italy, or it did back way back when, is that you choose uh, your high school when you, you know, at the end of uh, eighth grade, and um, and uh, you at that time you really were either going to a more professional school or uh, a school that was meant to prep you for college. Yeah. Um, this is all public school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about private schools until <laughs> much later. Do they have but any of them there? They have, must have them, and there are some parochial schools, and but everybody goes to public school that I know of. Yeah. Anyway, so I picked the one that is more that was more uh, towards the sciences, but not really for a strong interest in science. In fact, my main motivation was that uh, I was going to be able to study English for five years. Um, oh, wait, so that didn't happen if you'd been in a non-science high school? Well, so the the other prep, like college preparatory school, would have been the Liceo Classico, yeah. right? And so that... Speak um, in Latin or something? It's Greek and Latin. And you no study English. modern languages for a couple of years and then you drop them. Oh, I see. Um, and, you know, in towns that, you know, larger town would have had other kind of prep, you know, preparatory schools. Yeah. But, uh, but mine didn't. And so, and I think you could have studied English um, if you were studying like accounting or something like that. Like my mother even studied English in school because it was... Um, but she studied specifically commercial English, she calls it. What's that? It, I think it's just something that allows you to write a letter, you know, to somebody in England, say, we need oh. five bushels of something. I don't know, you know, but you know how to start the letter and the letter. And, okay. Um, so I know they'd studied languages in those schools, but it, I, I never, I really knew that I wanted to keep studying, so... Um, I knew I wanted to do a liceo, and then the choice was Wait, either... What's that word mean? Liceo um, is this particular school that oh. doesn't prepare you for a profession. You uh, just... I see, okay. The more academic yeah. one. Okay, so you want to study science to learn English. Because why? Because you... I you, don't know. Because... You were attracted by... The, because the all the music the was... World. All the music was in English, yeah, and, yeah. you know, so, yeah. just... Um, 
I didn't really know. I just, you know, you're 13. God, you don't know 13, anything. okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. But the school, you know, again, scientific in Italy in, you know, in the 80s meant, um, I always tell the story, you know, it's, it's uh, one year of chemistry, maybe two of biology, and, um, and there's like five years of Latin, right? <laughs> so... The scientists get five years of Latin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and we had philosophy and history, um, yeah. you know, literature, I mean, the usual. But it, it, yeah, it wasn't very scientifically oriented. Well, there were no be, labs. I mean, we know? should say it wouldn't be that, I mean, if you, I mean, here you, we're no more, we're less specialized of anything. I mean, so it's, I mean, compared to other, some other places in Europe, maybe you were. Well, because it was you know one I mean? of these preparatory schools. So you already, you know, you've made that choice. Otherwise, yes, you are much more specialized. But, yeah. No, but the high school is, uh, is considered, um, the place where you get your culture anyway. And, uh, and you do it at, you know, it's five years and you do it at that level. Anyway, make a long story short. I get into this school and, um, I'm a good student, and it becomes apparent that, uh, to me at least, that I just really like analytical work, uh, no matter in what. You know, it could be um, reading through a text and figuring out the historical uh-huh. context and the influences, uh-huh. or it could be physics and just that that. You, know, you mean structure. solving problems logically or something? Yeah, yeah, that rational uh-huh. approach to things. I don't have an artistic, you know, right. way of approaching things. And uh, and I really thought, okay, now I have to make a decision when I when it was time to go to college. You know, either I I keep going with physics, or I um, or I go towards like literature. And I was thinking in terms of again of literary criticism or something along those lines would I would have mm-hmm. really liked. But um, I figured I didn't have the, the, the background knowledge of um, mm. some of my peers. Like I didn't have Greek, right? My Latin was okay, but it wasn't so good that I mm. could, for example, mm. read uh, the Iliad with the right metric. Okay. Right? That's what they do at the classics I school, see. right? It's... And so it felt like they're probably going to eat my lunch if I try that route. And everybody tells you it's not easy to get a degree, you know, not a degree, a a job with a degree in literature. And so I made the sensible decision and I went into physics. Did did your folks have any opinion? Did did you have any family, like, pressure or suggestion or? No, I think they were just happy that I could go to college, you know. Right, happy they had a... Good student, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not, my family is, I, my grandfather on my father's side actually went to college, but it was a complete anomaly. Mm. Um, and, um, but my mother finished high school and couldn't go on at all. Like, there was no money, there was no, you know, it wasn't even were, in the cards. We should, your folks were born in the... I can't remember. It. We're kind of thirty-three born in the war. and thirty-four. So there were kids in the war. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my father 
uh, smart, interested, curious, and all that, but couldn't stand school. So he never finished high school. Right. Um, and and so, but especially my mother really had a thing for like you know being educated and would have loved for right. herself to do it. And so she was just thrilled that, yeah. that I was going to get there. Right. Um, I don't think they, it mattered to them what I chose. Okay, good. So, you, yeah. So you had this great physics teacher. You weren't that good at literary criticism. Um, that, and the physics teacher, is he still around? We want to do a shout out to this guy? Yes. <laughs> I met him this summer. I was out to dinner. Uh-huh. Just In by fact, accident. Very much by accident. In fact, I was supposed to be uh, back here in the U.S., but United canceled my flight on Wednesday <laughs> and couldn't fly us until Friday. And so we had a couple more days with my folks. We were out to dinner, and I turn around, and uh, and I see Professor Barattini. So say it again. Professor Barattini. Barattini. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm like, Mom. Is that him? Do you think it's him? So go. And so I went and uh-huh. uh and it was very sweet. He um remember you? He remembered me. Is he still teaching he, there? I I I didn't even ask. I don't know. I think he's retired. <laughs> okay. Um and somehow he actually knew that um that I was working at Columbia. Oh really? You okay. Know? Um yeah. I think but my father then told me that they had um, that the school for, I don't know, whatever anniversary of, uh, um, it had been a, a reasonably new school when I started it. And yeah. so they had some big anniversary and they did yeah. like, you know, who's who, where they are now. Uh-huh. And so this had come up. And so I had my chance of telling him, you know, I'm there because of you. You know, a lot of people's origin story as scientists has some special teacher in there somewhere. Yeah. No. And this would probably... It's good um, when they find out. You know, I think most times they don't find out. They don't know what happens to the kids. Hmm. It's great that you... So he and was the, moved the, the by style, this? I mean, Yeah, what? yeah, he was very happy. <laughs> and I was moved and very happy to be able to tell him. Yeah. You know? and, and if I think back, I mean, I, I think that his style, like here, he would not, you know, there was, nothing would fly. Why? What did he do? Well, so the one thing that I remembered most... Um, is um, he was explaining acceleration, you know, the fact that acceleration is the change of a vector. Yeah. And therefore, you can change it. By- yeah. So it was fascinating in that respect, the direction. Yeah. So here I am standing in Sabiazutti, you know, just do f- 10 steps every, you know, as I count, and uh, and walk around. Okay, turn left. Okay, did you accelerate? And I, no. Okay, keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> and he had me go around and, and he would make me turn and then ask, did you accelerate? And I would continue to say, no, I didn't. <laughs> Till finally down on me. It's like, okay, I'm changing the damn direction. I am accelerating. Okay, so you have this professor, you get... Uh... Martini gets you into physics. Yes. And, and then, so then I you go, go to, Trieste. to Trieste, which is the closest place where they have physics. There was no physics uh, oh, okay. in Udine. There is Udine. a university, but it has no physics. Now Udine, it does, I think. Udine right? at that time had two um, degrees. One was computer science, and the other one I have no idea. 
so I remember I considered computer science, but I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to do physics, right. so I went to Trieste. Yeah. But for the you know the Italians are different. You're not you know you're not leaving home really, right? And so I would, <laughs> um, you know, we had our apartment and everything. But every week I would bring laundry home. My mother yeah. would do the laundry, would iron everything, and I right. would bring it back. Yeah, I've told you the story, right? And then when I moved to Seattle. I can't remember. I moved to Seattle then in 96, you know, to, to, to go get study for my PhD. And so the quarter started September 19th. Uh, that's when I flew. Um, 96, six. you said, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was there from September 19th till Christmas break. And Christmas break, I go home. And the first thing my mother asks me is, do you have any laundry for me? <laughs> well, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm happy to report I did not. <laughs> right. Well, we skipped some stuff there, though. So between starting in Trieste and, and coming to Seattle was where you got into our field. So Because of ICTP. Because yeah, so they were having... Um. Because they were having these summer schools um, and more and more um, interaction with the, with the larger community doing work on climate. And so my professors knew about it. And so wait, so, wait, so, so you're at the University of Udine, uh, sorry, in Trieste studying physics, whatever it's called, University of Trieste, what is it yeah. called? Yeah. And ICTP is this other research entity in town that has all these international events and has people visiting and has all kinds of workshops. So somehow... You hooked up. Your professors knew these people, and you got hooked up. Yeah, so they all had offices. um, Not all, but um, some of the more theoretical professors also had offices at ICDP. Mm -hmm. And so, um, one of my professors, who was uh, the main teacher for elementary particles, um, which is what I was focusing on. um, As an undergrad, you were doing elementary. Okay, all right, it's pretty advanced. Um, so they knew when I, when I realized that I, that's really not what I wanted to do as a career. And I was trying to talk to people about what are the other options, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. and part of it was, I did not want to be, it felt like elementary particles was a very hard field where I wouldn't be able to do anything that was exciting that where you know i was good enough probably to do like the you know 15th order correction to the mass of something or another but yeah um and so there was that that i don't think a lot lot of people come into our field from physics for similar reasons yeah yeah um and um having decided that i was probably better off doing something else uh, i also had um this idea that maybe i could do something that was good for the environment you did have that idea where did that come from <sighs> i don't even know i mean it's just I mean, you had that before being exposed to ictp yeah 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 okay. yeah no this was kind of very generic environmentalism you recycle right. you okay. take care of baby pandas you yeah, know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you also the had the thing. idea that you're going to be a scientist though well, now. at that point, I had the idea that I would just go to the next step and yeah. it looked like I could maybe do it, right? Yeah. Um, I tell, you know, usually I tell people, look, I, they put me in school when I was three 
And uh, I never really wanted to get out. And I managed to never really had a job, have a job that wasn't school related. And, uh, um, you know, it seemed like the obvious thing to do. You stay here. It's fun. They teach you things. That's all you do. It's not hard on your back. I mean, what else do you want? It is hard on your back for some of us, but yeah. Eventually. Not when, Eventually. You're, not when you're 22, yeah. I mean, yeah. But a lot of people have that it kind of inertia when they're young. A lot of people get carried into graduate school by that inertia when they're young. But then many of them at some point have some sort of crisis of faith where often in, in, during graduate school where they suddenly think, do I really want to be doing this? Do I really? I mean, this is jumping ahead, but... Didn't seem like you ever had that. No, Somehow I had the. Never, I had the. You never. I, just, you never felt like what would life? Maybe life would be better outside of school. That never occurred to you. No, at least I knew what the path was, and it seemed like that's great. Why would I ever, yeah. you know, get out off of this thing? Uh-huh. Um, and what's the my, point where would that ends? My my <laughs> night of uh, uh, of doubt was um, when I had to. You know, when I was a soft money scientist and didn't know, you know, how can I go on from project to project, not knowing, right. not knowing if I was going to get a finance, yes. not knowing if I, right. um, I was going to be successful and successful in this case means keeping my job, not necessarily right. being, you know, oh, doing something great for the science. Right. So that felt, um, it was the first time the school failed me, you know? <laughs> okay. So there's no need to be obvious. linear. So let's jump straight to this. There's no need to do things in order. So, but, but just to get the outline so, so uh, people can follow. So, so Trieste, you, from the ICTP, you, you learn about climate. You I c- kind get of in touch with somebody there who was a graduate student, uh, of an American, you know, in a American school with an American professor. Um, but he was doing a lot of work remotely from there. And so he kind of... And who's that? Wait, that's... So the professor was Shukla. Oh, Shukla, okay. At yep. Kola and University of Maryland at that time still. Uh-huh. And uh, the student was Oreste Reale. Okay. Uh, originally from Trieste, and so he was there. Uh-huh. Um, and um, And so they got me into this field. Right. Uh, enough that I wrote my senior thesis with them and then started applying to grad school uh, with their guidance. I get my degree. I I go for these few months in uh, to uh, DC um, and I get you know connected uh, through Shukla to somebody in Italy who is doing climate who mm-hmm. I didn't know existed Navarra mm-hmm. and their group in, uh, in at that time Modena. So they arranged for me to have an internship there for a few months. And so I'm there for uh, nine months while I my applications come through. And, Meaning uh, you're applying to... I apply to grad school. Graduate PhD programs in the United yes. States in atmospheric science. That's right. Six of them. Okay. And then the letters come in that, you know, that I get accepted and I had to choose where to go. What was the top choices? Well, I got accepted everywhere. Uh, and I had applied MIT, Princeton, Seattle, 
Harvard, I think. Yeah, I uh, and and a couple of places in Colorado. Yeah, CSU. Probably. Yeah, CSU and Boulder, yeah, and and uh-huh. uh, yeah. And I didn't know at that time the big difference between the East Coast and the West Coast, and you know, not even it didn't really sink in that in terms of time and money, how difficult it is to go back and forth between Europe and the West Coast. Yeah. I just thought once I'm in the U.S., I'm in the U.S., what's the problem? You, know? <laughs> you didn't understand the difference between a really big country and a smaller uh, one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- there's a, right? There's the ability of looking at a map and knowing that those are three hours of uh, difference between a coast and, and, and mm-hmm. the other. And yeah. then there's understanding it at a deeper level. I'm glad I ended up in Seattle. I love the place. The people I met there yeah. are going to be lifelong, you know, right. beloved friends. So yeah, I got my husband there. Right. Well, you guys met while you are in graduate school? Mm-hmm. In the beginning or the end? I can't the remember. very end. The right. poor man thought he had come back to Seattle to stay after having been uh-huh. all over the United States um, and went back to his place of birth and where he is. He was extended. born in Seattle? Yeah. Okay. His extended family is between Portland and, and Seattle. Okay. I guess I knew this, but I, I know his family's in this. But his parents this, are in the South, in, in South Atlanta. Now, yeah. yeah. So he made his way to Seattle and he wanted to just be there and not ever leave right. again. And then he met me. And yeah. I was really close to finishing my PhD. So you get your PhD in Seattle with Batiste and Sarachik working on tropical climate. Then get hired as a postdoc by me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it worked out well for everybody. And, and Jochenan Kushner, I think, was involved too. And, uh, right, so then... And at that time, you could be promoted to a Doherty Associate Research Scientist. Yeah, maybe we should explain how this works. So, uh, Lamont is the earth science arm of Columbia University, if you want to call it that way. Sure. And uh, uh, it's a different campus from the one in Morningside, and the... Morningside uh, being Manhattan. Morningside yeah. being Manhattan. And uh, so Mr. Lamont gave the campus and Mr. Doherty mm-hmm. gave a bunch of money uh, with the purpose of hiring scientists. And yeah. so um, uh, and so when I was here as a postdoc, you could then be uh, hired, promoted to be a research scientist with some support from the endowment that Doherty had left. And the rest was um, supposed to be supported by uh, projects, uh, you know, grants right. that you get from NSF or DOE or whatever. Right. Um, and that's what happened. Um, so the normal, I mean, the normal U.S. academic faculty tenure track job is that we're paid nine months of the year by the institution and we do teaching and we do research too, which if we're in the sciences, which hopefully is externally funded. But we don't need to pay our own salaries unless, except in the summer, if we want to be paid in the summer. Whereas these jobs at Lamont are, you know, on paper, by default, 100% research. And so a large fraction of people's salaries paid on grants. So it's a, it's a model that a lot of other labs have as well. It um, worked very but, well in the 50s when, uh, you know, right. the, the Department of uh, Defense would say, well, good boys of Columbia. You do good science. Here's a chunk of money. Come back to me in five years. Tell me what you found. Right. It's a little bit more involved. You know what I? You know what I heard? Um, Actually, Dick Lindzen told me that 
um, at, at Harvard, both at Harvard and MIT, like not only did they only have one grant, big time, people that we think of as like the big time professors at the top of the field at this time, like in the 60s, 70s, not only they have one grant, they had one grant shared by several faculty members for like, I don't know if it was three years or five years that was, you know, funded all their students in their whole group and it was renewed by a site visit. <laughs> they didn't even have to write a proposal. Yeah. The program managers come, oh, you guys look fine. Here, have another few years of money. Look, if you are in, within <laughs> the, the old boys network, it's lovely. I mean, who wouldn't want no, it No, no, no. Well, there's two things. There's the old boys network, but it was a different time. That, yeah, yeah. That, that does not exist. Now. I don't care how old boys you are now. No, there's no, no, no such thing today. What I'm trying to say <laughs> is that, I mean, the reason why we don't have that anymore is because that excludes everybody that is not Harvard, MIT, Columbia, right? Because the people at U university of north dakota whatever they couldn't get nsf money i bet you i don't know actually i don't think i think you'd like to think that's the reason i don't think that's the reason it's over i think the reason it's over is that congress isn't giving us so much money anymore and everything's gotten more bureaucratic and they're i mean it's a combination of things but i actually think a lot of universities had it i think everybody had it much easier back then and anybody who's been who's that old if you ask them okay they will say that was my only thing that i could say okay well we're doing this for the right reasons you know, because that you know, well, because that maybe, way is more democratic, and everybody can yeah. apply, and young people can apply. Yeah, right. That would be the upside of it, but yeah, I don't think that's actually why it changed since the seventies. I think it's that Congress doesn't want to give yeah, us that yeah, kind of money yeah. anymore. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I mean, anyway. that has happened too. I mean, there is bureaucracy around being equitable and being, you know, but yeah. So anyway, this is how these institutions got founded with these soft money jobs. These were attractive back in the day because the money was easy to raise. So people didn't have to like, why teach? Why do all that kind of stuff? You could do whatever. Yeah. And this was the model of the job you walked into after you got promoted for being a postdoc. Yeah. And so there was this really interesting conversation with my mother when I told her that I was promoted. And that this would be in about 2006 seven or seven, ish? maybe. Yeah. 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 You got a, you got a permanent job at Columbia now. Congratulations, Michaela. Thank you. <laughs> and so I tell my mom, I have a, you know, I got promoted, um, problem, you know, but now I have to find my own money. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, up to now, Adam was finding money and I would just get paid. I kind of envisioned somebody like looking under, find, it sounds like we're like, <laughs> <laughs> Looking under the cushions of the couch or something. <laughs> for, for change that Congress has lost uh, in, in, the, in the cushions. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, yeah, so it was very hard to convince my mother that this was a promotion. but um, Because you had to explain to her that you had to write proposals now and if somehow right. you didn't get the money, something and bad I would think happen. That, yeah, and I think that for a while they didn't understand the fact that, you know, I, there wasn't the real... Um, uh, threat that I would not have money for rent, you know. Um, it's like right. they thought probably that if I can't find the money, then I don't have any money, you know, in my, in my bank account. Right. Uh, it's not quite that dire, right? Because, no, it's not. Uh, because there are a lot of safety nets and the university steps in if needed. And in fact, it doesn't, it didn't have to because between my project and projects of my, of colleagues of mine, you know, somehow it all worked out. Yeah, you've so, always, been fine yeah so so now they've they know but was your anxiety about it 
I mean, because I, you know, obviously I've been around for this this whole part of the story, so I remember a lot of it. But I don't. I mean, was your anxiety around it? Did it happen at that t- the same time as you're having the conversation with your parents, or did it only start to upset no, you later? It, it was later. I mean, at the beginning, it was just. First of all, I was just happy that I did get the promotion, right? Um, and I had money at the beginning through a proposal and. I was preoccupied with other stuff like having a baby. Um, right. Bruno was born when? 2007. Oh, right. When you got, okay. Yeah. Big year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was later where I was thinking, okay, I can't envision 30 years of this, you know? Um, I went as far as applying for one job outside academia so with the, the city of New York. Oh, really? What'd you apply for? <sighs> Uh, the Department of Environmental Protection had something that had to do with uh, um, sustainability. So this was at some moment where the proposal writing was getting tough, and you I were... guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know, why not? Um, <laughs> it it became very clear why that was probably not really my path. When my friend who has a job with the city came to help me write my resume and I had this LaTeX document opened and she's like, you're coding your resume. (laughs) But I mean, the response that a lot of people, I mean, so this, so this position and the money stress is, you know, something experienced by a lot of our colleagues who are in the same situation uh, over the last decades. I mean, it's been hard for many people. But for a lot of people, so you were still relatively young scientist at this time. Mm-hmm. And so the response of a lot of people would be to go on the job market and look for hard money jobs. And somehow you never were that motivated to do that. Well, Martin, my husband, um, I'll, you know, he agreed to come to New York right. under uh, the pact that we would never... Um, just move to another place. We would either stay here or move uh-huh. back, move back to what? Seattle or move back to Italy. Why? 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 Why is moving the worst? I mean, if you were unhappy in a place, because why wouldn't you move? Because not having a community in mm. um, is just really, really hard on us. And so the idea of mm. starting from scratch again. Mm. Um, was just, we didn't want to do it. Um, mm. and in particular, you know, whether that was a good decision or not, I don't know, because, mm. uh, building a community in New York hasn't been the easiest thing either. New York is a very transient place. There's, a, it's yeah. very busy. It's very, right. So it could have been that if we had moved five years into it, you know, and two years later, we would have had a better community in the new place than, seven years in in new york right right so i don't know that it was a very rational what does community community means not just the of course not just the people you work with but your friends and and uh and some institution are some institutions part of it the schools the the church that what, what's what does community, community mean? for me is the fact that um you have somebody who will drop whatever they're doing there yeah. um, to come and, and be with you either yeah. because you are having a bad day or because you're celebrating something or, right. you know, so there's 
those those kind of friends yeah um and and then there's something even more subtle than that less less obvious but right now for example yeah um the guy at the corner with a halal truck yeah says buongiorno my friend (laughs) every day to me and i love it okay and um the fact that you know there are shopkeepers around here that know me the fact that yeah. you know that that i know where i need to go to yeah um to buy good produce i don't know it just yeah. you know that thing matters to me yeah um and uh being able to impact the community to make that place where you live yeah. a little bit more like you New York is incredibly difficult to do, but yeah. you have to be in a place long enough to be able to do it. So in Seattle it was easier, right? In Seattle, there's there are benches out there that I built. Really? Still there. How did you build benches? <laughs> because um there was an ordinance. Um I forget the name of the guy, but anyway, there was a um a push to get homeless people out of Seattle and just to make yeah. their life really miserable. Yeah. And here, so, here too, about the same time. And so um, a lot of benches were taken out. A lot of benches were, um, you know, they, they would put these armrests so that you can't sleep on, on them. Yeah. Um, some bus shelters would have, instead of a regular bench, they would have this thing that is slanted so that you can just... Yeah half sit on them yeah um and so community organizers uh said okay let's just talk to businesses and uh and build benches and put them in on the sidewalk in front of businesses who are um in favor and we'll take care of the bench and 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 really be a community effort so we built a bunch of benches like really solid ones at the end of my first year of grad school um, again, with this sense of like, I want to put roots. I, uh, looked for volunteer opportunities, um, outside of the university. I wanted to just meet people who were there and who were doing this kind of work. And, um, people who were there, meaning not people who planned to leave in five years, you know, when they were done with grad school. I wanted people who felt rooted in that community. And so I started volunteer with this group that was doing um, cooking meals for homeless people yeah. because that's because I like to cook and I know how to do it well. Yeah. And, you know, so that seemed like a skill that I could use. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I just didn't know exactly who these people were turned out to be this beautiful group of anarchist um, <laughs> kids. Yeah. Um, not just kids. I mean, there were there were more adult people. Uh, it was very broad in in age, um, but a wonderful group of people. And uh, and so they became my friends and my main, uh, right. you know. Um, do people. you think this uh, seeking of roots has something to do with just being so far from home? I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, I've never cried as much as I cried that first year of grad school. Man, that was brutal. Oh, just really? brutal. Yeah. 
You stuck it out. Okay, so then you get to New York. You don't want to move anymore. So you stay in the soft money job, even though it kind of sucks sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you seem adjusted to it now, though, somehow. You seem less... You don't seem as stressed out about it as you did <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there are 10 years of data points that said that I can do this. Yeah. Um, there's Martin, who has been repeating like a broken record, don't worry, you know, we'll just, we'll just be fine. If this gig is up, this gig is up, we'll do something else. We're fine. Oh, yeah. What about being more confident as a, actually as a scientist? I mean, I mean, knowing that you've established yourself. So we should say you've been working on similar topics over the years, but, but with, of course, with some evolution, tropical climate, mm-hmm. the monsoons, which is the tropical big tropical manifestation of the annual cycle for your Mm -hmm. whole career. And you're known now as a big shot in this. Does that, I mean, doesn't that help you? I mean, in other words, there's the experience of having raised the money and knowing you can survive, but is also knowing that you have the respect of your peers and you're a mentor to younger people and every people know your name. You know, does that help you uh, get through the uh, the stress or? Not really. (laughs) All right. I still think about the monsoon and like I have no idea how this thing works, you know. And uh, um, oh, but it's but the view has changed a lot, and you've been part of that. Yes, I know. But there's this sense of like, you know, if a student asked me, I don't know what to tell them, which is fine. It's but it's it's part of the job, right? And so there's that sense of like, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about, even though I'm building the conversation. We call that imposter syndrome. Don't know that I have a legacy that I can point to and feel like it's it's really solid. And and, and you do get feedback about that, you know. You not you you like I get feedback Me about too. that. Me too. I mean, I think you um, know, the the, th- the thing you have to realize people, is that everybody like, feels this way to some extent. In other words, there's only a few people who have like won the Nobel Prize. You know, everybody you you can always there's always somebody who's higher achieving than you, no matter who you. Yes. Are, right? But so there I are a lot of people. Get, I, do, I also get, I think, um, the actual, you know, it's like, well, like, you know, if people, like, you mentioned young people, right? Yeah. And uh, somebody comes to me and says, I would love to write a really, you know, a, a seminal paper, like Adams. You know, that's what they say. Nobody's ever said to me, like yours. Well, I don't know. But I mean, but you have to, well, that's nice to hear for me, but I'm sorry you, uh, I mean, but do you you have to understand that there are people who are happy to be in the room with you, right? I mean, do you get that now? (laughs) You see what I mean? It's like, it's all, we're all in the same thing to some extent. And there are, even some of the people who have won every prize in the book are still unhappy. I mean, some of those people have personality disorders, but like. That's a thing too, right? You, in other words, we all have to I know, come I know. to grips with our own, you know, uh, limitations. I get it. And um, yours are, you know, not too bad. As I mean, no, you, you I know, had a I know, successful. I know, I know, I know. And there's always Mozart, right? <laughs> right. So if you want to compare yourself to people and feel bad about yourself, you can always. Right. So, I mean, so the thing we should talk about now, I mean, because you've been very active uh, in the last couple of years in the diversity and inclusion activities at Lamont and especially, um, you know, mentoring and working, uh, being in deep conversations with a lot of young women scientists. And, and what has struck me in watching you do this is that you're very good at it. You're very effective in kind of being the senior person who's, who's 
engaging these conversations more than almost anybody else. But it's doesn't this the issue of um, uh, you know the feminist concern that women are treated uh, in a, badly in science and excluded in various ways is something that is now being voiced very strongly um, in the in science and in academic institutions. And you've been very involved in that discussion, but it's not something that ever comes up in your description of your own career. I mean, in other words, you haven't mentioned it once yet. You haven't talked about this as an issue of something that, of all the things that limited you, it's not one that comes up. So this is something that, that strikes me as how passionate you are about this issue and yet how how little that seems to be a part of your description of your own experience. Because I'm, my, in my life, I think I have encountered um, mostly of, always people who were amazing and supportive and and good to me and um and so the the individual relationships i've had all feel like you know i should have only gratitude for them and i mm-hmm. only have gratitude for them the system is a different story yeah right and so systemically i think that there is an issue yeah um but i don't you know, it's uh, my life. Um, I'm sure has been shaped by it, and, and some of these issues with, like, um, you know, the fact that you're asked to be ready to move uh, and, yeah. and uproot yourself right at the time when maybe, especially if you're a woman, you would yeah. like to have children, and right. uh, you know, and a support system that allows you to say, "Oh, my children, my child is vomiting green stuff. I need to have somebody nearby who can yeah. take care of him." Right. Right. Um. So, you know, th- that is clear to me that the system is built. What are Not the other things? Women. What are the other things besides that? Because there, because family, you know, things around family is one thing, but my understanding of the statistics is that there, well, it's not only that. I mean, there's also you, for example, telling me that I should write a um, single author paper because right. uh, it's a good thing for my career, and right. I'm telling you, Adam, I have a lot more fun writing with you. And you said, yeah. but it's not as good for your career. No, fuck my career. You know, I don't, it's like, right. I don't want to have to do it the way that the mighty white male wants me to do it. All right. I'm trying um, to remember what, I know we had this conversation. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was the delay paper. Oh, but that one I did write with you. Yes, you did, because I insisted. <laughs> <laughs> I think eventually I got you to do one by yourself. Well, well the thing yeah. was I knew you could do it. I mean, but you... why would I do something that I'd enjoy much less just because the okay. system I only has wanted decided... one paper. I only wanted you to do one paper. Well, because you would write me these papers. You, you know, we had this, you would write a paper, hand me this paper. Would you, you know, write this paper with me? And it's like, you already wrote it. Just send it, you know. It was like you're giving me credit for something I didn't do. I mean, I feel that way a lot with Pete Piper's that I'm a co-author on. That's how the system sort of works. But like, I, but you know, the, I, I saw my role as much less than you saw it. But I get a whole lot more joy in in coming to you with a figure and says, does this say what I think it says? Or, you know, or writing it um, and have you read it through and say you know yeah. first of all Michaela that word doesn't actually exist which is very helpful <laughs> um but 
uh, you know, just just think it through. What does this, yeah, you yeah, know, what's no, the structure? I, 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 what this, you, what that, I mean, this part you don't have to explain to me. I mean, I enjoyed this process too. I didn't want to not write the papers either because I didn't want to do it. I just, you know, I knew that it would look good on your CV if you'd. Well, that's what I'm saying. So the 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 fact that 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 a paper that in which I am sole author looks better on my CV than a paper that I'm leading but I'm writing with you is why is it there? Why is it a thing? That's interesting. I never thought of this particular one as a feminist issue. But there's a system there that says that you know. the hero version mm. of science is mm. still valued more than mm. um, a community builder, yeah. which is why we started this conversation with yeah, me right. saying the interactions I've had with the individuals right, have right. been nothing but right. lovely, and I'm deeply grateful for all of them. The system is wrong. Right. Right. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, so in when we... Oh, the other thing. Oh, go ahead. Negotiation. Um, oh, that's horrible uh, for everybody. Well, but you know, we are told that you know women don't don't negotiate it as much as men. So right. you know, you need to help. You right. need. We are going to train you to be more aggressive in your negotiations. Right. Says what that the standard is male. Says what that we, you don't have yeah. to train the male to just just you know what just cool it. <laughs> don't push it. Don't be a jerk. Right. Why don't we have that? No, we're going to train women. You mean like negotiations to be more for aggressive promotions negotiations. and salaries and things? In general, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? I mean, it just the the system is set up so that the standard is what it's always been, and what it's always been is a you know white male, possibly right. with a wife at home who takes right. care of shit. Well, what you're describing is though is culture. I mean, the thing about the single author paper and the negotiation that's not. That's that's culture. It's not, you know, no. These things aren't written down. These things aren't rules or institution. These things are cultural. So you're, you, what you're saying is the culture should. But when, change. but when, as part of you know, when an institution like Lamont, yeah, yeah the culture needs to change. So think about you know, if you think about environmentalism, right? Yeah. You can think about the various issues, you know, and. Uh, um okay global warming or um draining wetlands or you know or you can think in terms of like the philosophy behind it so it's okay if we stop thinking about earth as something to use you know that is completely external to us Right? right, then all these things will actually somehow right. we think one way or another, maybe good intentions are not good enough and and you have to you know study separately each and in and and every one of these issues, but the sense you get is that, yeah, things will be much better if we stop thinking this way, right, and so I think that to some degree that's what this wave of feminism is saying, right um. So is and it's not just feminism; it really is uh, identity politics in its best form. To say, uh, move away from the idea that there is a standard, and then something, you know, and then there's um, the non-standard version, right? right? Move away from that, and everything will be better. But how do you? I mean, but some things are challenging, right? I mean, what it seems to me that what you're what you're saying is that 
with the implication, one implication we might take from this is that more important than specific institutional changes is just sort of cultural education of everyone to try to treat each other better. Right. I mean, I've heard you say things to this effect, you know, don't be a jerk. I mean, teach everybody how to not be a jerk, but, but some things are tricky, right? Because, because jobs are still given. So you talk about teamwork and then, and single author paper being, uh, you know, an unfair thing to demand of someone, but jobs are still given to individuals, right? We don't hire teams of people. So, but you can hire the individual who can build a team and lead a team. Yeah. So how do we assess that for a young person? I don't know. You know, it's going to be trial and error, but it's yeah. not like the way we have to assess, right. you know, people are is foolproof right no, now. No, of course not. It's very random and unfair and, in various ways. You know, knowingly, and we, I mean, and we know it's biased. Yeah, sure. It yeah. is. No, yeah, so, I, I'm, con- I, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so it's the it's the intent more than a specific set of. Well, it's and it's looking at policies, um, you know, evaluating them for you know what's the effect on this, right? Yeah. Who feels included? Who feels excluded? Yeah. Um, and how much of the engagement here, let's, by here I mean on this campus, your engagement, that the engagement that you've seen, how much of this is sparked one way or another by the election of 2016? <laughs> oh, the election of 2016. <laughs> um, how much is it? Um, a lot, I think. I mean, it's, um, here's the thing. Um, before 2016, we could we could think oh we we're you know it's slow and steady we're going to move on you know and and it's going to get better and we are educating ourselves and it's you know but it could be with a leisurely pace because we're progressing in this direction of action on the environment and curbing emission and mm-hmm. including um you know, women and and um, as equal and people of different races as bringing, you know, yeah. not just being accepted, but bringing extra value because diversity is a positive thing, right? Yeah. And then a huge number of Americans decided that it was okay to have somebody who boss, boasts how do you say that? Boasts, boasts about sexual assault. Yeah. Right. And I had to talk to my nine-year-old son about why, even though this guy who's a very prominent person and then ended up being the president grabs women by the pussy, why that is not acceptable. After yeah. having made the same little nine-year-old right. listen to speeches by the president because not this pe- the president is speaking let's let's hear what he has to say this is important really you made bruno listen to trump no 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 i made bruno listen to obama oh, okay. right <laughs> and 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 explaining to him you know and just having this sense of like this is a person that this is a leader we hear what he has to say yeah. and it's important right and then it's like okay don't listen to this one 
right? Just don't. Don't ever even go to, to him. Yeah, that was awful. That was just awful. Uh, yeah, I was there. Oh. I know. Oh. Me too. I mean, it was good to be able to go back, you know, go to work to a place that you knew was sympathetic and, and yeah. where people kind of accepted the fact that you weren't going to get anything done that day because you yeah. just felt like dead. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was good so, to walk. I, you, I, did you get something out of walking into the streets in New York and it was all the same? I got some, I got some solace out of that. New York City sort of felt the same after, as long as you don't go too near to Trump Tower. Lamont <laughs> <laughs> didn't feel the same. Lamont no, felt yeah. beaten. Um, well, everybody was terrified that all the funding was going to be cut for one thing. Well, for, that's not even it. I mean, I, I was terrified of the things that I was absolutely right to be terrified about. Yeah, but I was terrified that we weren't going to move on climate, you know, move on on yes. climate change. I was terrified yes. that um that women's rights were going to be Yes. you know, I wasn't terrified that we were going to say Nazis were good actually. That I thought was was settled. I, yes. That was a surprise. That yes. came as a right. as a bonus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. All, the, all those things are true, but on top of that, there was on top of all those things, which we all were, uh, you know, uh, feeling very acutely. Uh, there was all there was. I remember it. I remember acute fear on the Lamont campus that everybody's going to lose their job. Yeah, I mean, there was that couldn't be good for for job security either but I, for me that was it was low on the low on the list yeah. of concerns yeah. yeah right so that got all out of this uh this uh, discussion started i was going to say activism i'm not sure if it's activism but it's, it's well uh, i mean it's a, what, it's what, a conversation so what happened is that to go back to the idea of, you know, the slow and steady versus, oh, wait a second, no. You know, you can't just assume that it's going to keep moving in a positive direction. Right. You know, all hands on deck. Yeah. Like, and, and all hands on deck means more activism in terms of uh, the science that we, we do, uh, but also like, okay, we start rebuilding from the community up. Right. This yeah. is where we have, um, yes, yeah, sure. We can march. Yes, yeah, sure. We can vote. Yes, yeah, sure. We can give money. Right. You know, I went on a, on a great spending spree right after the election. Yeah. Um, you know, with my $15 a month to pretty much every <laughs> leftist organization you can think of. Um, but besides that, where, can we have an impact? And the impact yeah. we can have is in our environment. And my environment is Lamont. That's interesting. You, uh, I, you know, environment in this con context of people doing our job, some people might have thought you were going to talk about global warming or, or something, but you, you, that's not the environment you mean. No, no. I, um, it's already hard, right? I mean, it's already difficult to look at those plots and go like, oh shit, you know, this is my child's future. You know, it's me too. It's me. It's now, but I mean, I'm, I'm 
I am scared for Bruno. I am scared Bruno yeah. will be forced into war or God knows. I mean, it's just, I'm scared. Yeah. No, I know, but it never used to affect me that way. I mean, if I thought about it, it would, but it, I, I didn't used to feel that despite working in this field and knowing, looking at the same charts, it took a long time for me to be affected by it in that way. And it still doesn't affect me that way as much as it affects some people. I think, you know, I have to, I, I I'm still able to, the, the clinical detachment is slow to, yeah, slow to completely go away uh, for some of us. Yeah, no, it's, um, I can't, yeah, I can't think of it. 24/7. It's 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 a little bit better to just every now and then look at it from the point of view of like okay, I have an aqua planet with a square continent on it. You know, there are no people yeah. involved. Right. It's theory. Right. We should say that you organized a beginner comparison project with a lot of people doing simulations of aqua water-covered planets with square continents. So this yes. is idealized climate dynamics. Yes. So this, this is, is uh, and there's a four-time CO2 simulation as part of this because this is the big question, right? Right? Yeah. But because... Four times CO2, so you're doing global warming on the square continent, yeah. Yeah. And so it's still a motivation. It's still where really interesting, really cool, uh, you know, pun, for, forgive me the pun, <laughs> um, really cool science is done, and I'm not walking away from it, um, but I think it's... Uh, you know, it's my privilege, I guess, to be able to say, okay, I'm treating it as an intellectual right. question. Um, right. And then when it comes to, um, okay, are we really making progress? Are we yeah. doing what we need to do? I, I shut down. I can't think of it that way. It's just too terrifying. Yeah. It is, yeah. I, I, I struggle with it because it, it, it is that way, but it, at the same time, I don't know. I sort of feel like we, I don't think scientists should need to own the story. I don't think it's all on us. You know, it's, it has to be, everybody has to be motivated or nothing's going to, I mean, there has to be a large section of society yeah. that thinks this is a serious problem or nothing's going to, can't expect the scientists to be the heroes, but I don't know. It feels to me like we should be doing something. <laughs> <laughs> And I speak for myself here. I mean, this is Adam's crisis. Yeah, but I think it was maybe when IPCC Air 5 came out, but The Onion had this perfect, you know, um, article on their website with a big, with a photographs of like a big, big stack of papers, one on top of the other, and say, you know, scientists are telling the world to just read the damn things they wrote last time. To some degree, that's how I feel about it. It's like we've really told you all you needed to know. And if you haven't been listening so far, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, just go read that stuff. It's pretty good. You know, well, but that's, but that's about this. That's the informational role. But the question is, you know, should we be some special kind of activist? You know, I mean, you know, that, that's a framing that we're, we're telling other people and then they should do something, right? But. Well, with inclusion and diversity and that stuff, I actually have more patience and um, and empathy and a, a true understanding of how difficult this, this reprogramming is. And so I can come to it with with an attitude that is actually somewhat positive and, and uh, you know, that can relate across lines. Yeah. With climate change, I'm done. 
I have lost any sense of humor. I have lost any sense of like, oh, well, you weren't paying attention. Let me tell you. I'm dumb. No. Well, no. I mean, the other thing is... I don't is, have it in me. I'm well, just... Well, the diversity inclusion is an issue where, you know, the the change has to start locally. I mean, you have to, you know, you're talking about working within the institution. So you're dealing with individual, you know, small numbers of people that you know or can get to know. And it's sort of a little more... You know, the climate problem is so huge and and overwhelming and it's not, you know, the, the sort of most important action is collective on a very large scale. So it's very much harder to see what an individual, how to contribute as an individual, I think. Is that yeah. some of it? Yeah, but that's, that's I what, also think it's, I'm, I'm just, a, I would be a very t a terrible communicator about it. I disagree with you there. See, this is another... This is another Michaela's self-esteem issue. No, but I mean, I, no, it's not a self-esteem thing. But like, I, I, you know, I, I went, I did, for example, um, I gave a talk for the city's department of uh, construction. Uh, I don't remember design, design, something in construction. Yeah. Yes. Right. 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 And. Um, and Department I think of design I, and construction. Yeah. And I think I was too harsh, you know? Um, yeah, but all that stuff is just practice. I mean, you, you just keep doing... But it's hard doing... for me to just not do this and just give out this 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 vibe of like, dude, do not even come to me and tell me, the war you know, the earth has warmed before, you know? Because <laughs> that's the most absurd, ridiculous, this. <laughs> stupid argument i've ever heard right <laughs> and, and you look at them and it's kind of like well yeah and people died before but this dude got run over by a bus right yeah 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 but yeah. i can't say with a straight face it doesn't you know drip contempt do you still feel like it's a privilege to be doing what we're doing do you, do you have that does that yeah. sense carry you through the day sometimes yeah 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 me too it's, um, some, you know, interesting problems and important problems and good people to talk to and the ability to, um, to learn new things. Yeah. It is a privilege. And you're still in school after all these years. Yeah. <laughs> They'll never kick me out now. I'm tenured. Um, all right. Anything else we should talk about? I don't think so. Can we cover it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks, Michaela. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. Like Michaela said, it's a privilege to talk to good people and learn new things, and that's what that conversation was. Always a privilege to talk to Michaela. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Thanks for listening.